HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to a special crossover of What Doesn't Kill You and The Big Food Question, a podcast exploring the most urgent questions from a food industry in crisis. I'm Katie Kiefer from What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. Today, we're asking Magali Licoli from Venceremos a few questions about workers in the poultry industry in the state of Arkansas. So, Magali, thank you so much for doing this. Um, let's let's jump right in and talk about the model you use to organize workers because it is not does not function as a typical union. So, you started Venceremos. Um, tell us how it works and why it can be more effective than unionization. Yeah, well, thank you so much for inviting me to to this show. I I always I'm always excited to show and to 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 share the work that we do here in Arkansas. And well, this model really it's a it's been a journey uh, <laughs> since 2013 when I began advocating for poultry workers and trying to seek solutions of how to change the working conditions at poultry plants. Uh, we, I was running an, an worker justice center before, and that was just really more of the approach of like uh, filing cases through OSHA and also connecting with uh, the 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 union or the type of uh, with unions and other worker centers across the country to try to to bring solutions. Uh, but really, uh, with uh, with me organizing in Arkansas, we are in the home of Tyson Foods, you know, and Arkansas is a right-to-work state and also is a corporate state because uh, Tyson and Walmart uh, dominate the politics in Arkansas, really, yes. and, and the communities. So uh, the the approach was because the workers really, uh, through the these processes, you know, through filing with OSHA, OSHA has been not really successful in, in really implementing or assuring that workers are safe in their jobs. And right. also with the unions, you know, Arkansas, I mean, the poultry industry itself, in only, I think, only 20% of the plants are unionized. So in yes. Arkansas, we only have one plant that is unionized. So Incredible. really working here with the workers, I can tell you that there is a lot of distrust on those existing models, you know, to organize. Sure. Um, and because the unions are not, 
uh, are very weak in the South, that are not effective, and the lack of really efforts to 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 expand campaigns, worker campaigns, to keep growing the unions, you know, and to the poultry plants. It's just really for us, it was not a model that to follow because uh, we I don't ever organize workers to for them to become uh, union workers, you know, because we are not a union. I and so in that journey of seeking solutions, seeking answers, we ended up traveling in 2018 to Imocali, Florida. Yes. Uh, to learn about the worker-driven social responsibility model about the Fair Food Program. And really, to be honest, when we traveled there, I, I knew something there was calling me, you know, was calling the, the way that they organize. And I know that Imokali is also a rural community in the middle of, uh, you know, uh, Florida. Yes. It's just isolated communities. Uh and so we traveled there to learn uh, the fights of the farm workers. And so whenever we learn uh, the model, and that is a model that brings the co- the consumers, you know, uh, it brings the supply chain into adopted a code of conduct that is uh, led and driven driven by workers. And so and how it's reinforced through the market. So if the companies don't follow through, it brings market consequences. So That's all right. of this, um, the, the 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 components of the program, it really made the workers in Arkansas think is like, what about we expand this model? You know, using the same type of formula, sure, to expand that model into the poultry industry to create our own uh, mechanisms, to create our own program. And so workers are at the front line, you know, that workers are protected to speak up, that workers have a process in place, like a grievance process in place to put to to put uh, their claims and also uh, the powerful of the power of this model is really the market consequences, you know, because these companies really what they care the most are the profits, you know. And what about if we tied up with the the growing the consciousness with the consumers, you know, because I believe also right. there is a lot of this connection between where the fruit comes from and yeah, and, the, and re- of really the people, there is this, this, this connection. So, so in with, the, let me, I'm going to back mm-hmm. you up for one second because I just want people to understand what the Immokalee workers went through or how they mm-hmm. organized, which was, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially what they did to reach the consumer ultimately is they went to the grocery store chains mm-hmm. And they said, you must pay us another penny a pound. Mm -hmm. And some stores said no, right? But some stores were willing to because the Immokalee workers then, I guess, threatened them with uh, a more um, visual or more out in the open uh, protest to consumers. And that's what you're talking about when you're when you're saying this is driven by consumer awareness mm-hmm. as opposed to, uh, you know, a union saying, well, we're going to walk out on strike if you don't do blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Right? It's just okay. really understand the power dynamics, you know, that and yes. understand really the power that as consumers we have, you know, because right. ultimately these poultry companies, you know, they have a power, but ultimately their product goes to the grocery stores, to the supply chain. So right. people really, uh, when they eat, their chicken at KFC, at uh, <laughs> you know, uh, McDonald's, uh, Chick Fil A. You know, they don't know really where the chicken come from. But if we tell them, you know, this chicken that you are consuming comes from this plant where the conditions are inhumane, 
yeah. then there's this connection, you know, like I'm buying this uh, chicken sandwich and I am conscious that this chicken comes from this certain plant where workers are treated badly. So me as consumers, I also have a power of purchase. And I yes. can tell the, the my favorite supply chain, you know, my favorite restaurant, fast food restaurant, I want my uh, chicken sandwich that comes with dignity, you know? And, and so I think that is just really the power of this model is that brings the connection of the power that we all have to change things, you know? Yes, absolutely. So now during the pandemic, we're going to fast forward a little bit here. Uh-huh. During the pandemic, um, Tyson, in a very famous full page ad, claimed that, you know, the supply chain was breaking down and we were all going to have to, you know, stop eating chicken nuggets. Anyway, they used the pandemic as an opportunity to basically have themselves deemed essential workers, you know, that their packing plants would be filled with the essential workers which meant that they could keep the the chain running and keep the profits going. Mm-hmm. So um, did you, first of all, how have they responded to the pandemic? I mean, there's been a lot of press about how many people have died, how many people got sick. There's been a fair amount of coverage about the lack of PPE, the lack of masking, the lack of isolation, no paid medical leave. How have they, and, you know, at this point, a year and a half in, do you feel like the changes have been adequate uh, to protect workers in a way that they were not in the past? Or or do you feel like there's still a lot more to go? Yeah, I think there is a lot of uh, of work to do. I, I, and I, <laughs> okay. I, yes, I think like uh, last year, you know, during the pandemic, as you mentioned, Tyson did this full ad claiming that they, they must uh, stay open. And it was just really to to keep working or exposing workers to die and get sick out of their uh their uh needs of producing the same or more and actually Tyson for example they make more money during the last year than other years so absolutely uh so the thing is like whenever we began organizing actions it was a point really where workers we didn't have OSHA we didn't have the government the government actually the USDA granting waivers to increase the line speed there yep. was really nothing like the workers felt pretty abandoned, you know, by the yeah. by the government and everybody. So we didn't have any other option but to take direct action. So we, I was organizing with workers and workers were organizing at least in five different plants at some point here in, in the Northwest Arkansas demanding PPE because back in March, in April, workers were not granted like the basic protections really. And right. so because of the actions that we did, uh, the Tyson began providing and other companies began providing the basic protections. But then what we saw really was that a lot of that was only to protect their image, you know, like their yes. so-called dividers that they pulled in into the uh, processing plants. The fact is that workers were still working shoulder to shoulder, that those dividers didn't do anything to prevent the spread of the COVID. And they was just pretty much pretending. And workers knew all the time that that was just to pretend, you know, the, sure. the temperature scanners that didn't scan asymptomatic workers. Many workers were coming to work while sick. Uh, really, the company didn't care about that. It was just replacing w- workers and others that healthy workers and sick workers went home, others stayed. And it was a very... Uh, 
it was it was a, a tragedy really for these workers but it was oh, just not only the covid situation i think that people really don't understand that it was just not only the covid situation it was that the fact that these companies never want to slow down the production so that meant that right. workers less workers are still doing the job of many workers and so right now the situation doesn't look really good because um even if the companies provided PPE after we did actions. And, and, and I could tell you that uh, tra- traveling outside the, the Northwest Arkansas to nearby cities, I've spoken to workers that said that they received PPE at the end of the, uh, by the fall, by, by November, October, November. So yes. we know that some workers didn't receive PPE until, until the then. end of 2020, you know. And now the, and now also they're claiming that they have a 90% vaccine rate yes. in Tyson. And are, are, but our workers, workers are compliant. They will, they're willing to get the vaccines. I mean, I encourage everyone to, but I'm just, I'm wondering how that population has responded yes, to well, having to get a vaccine. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was That's a struggle. Tough. It's tough because there yes. is like this uh, polarized information about the vaccines, you know. Absolutely. That they are working, that they're just these conspiracy theories that obviously affect our communities because imagine they've been exposed to die and to get sick yes. you know purposely so it's just like how to trust you know how to gain trust almost oh, definitely and, and so it was a struggle you know to to get people vaccinated and it still is because we are in the south there is a lot of influence in the church the yes. the, the republicans you know that often are misleading the, the people about yes. wrong information that's and right so uh, with the workers, and I, I want to take uh, what your question about the vaccine mandates. Whenever that began happening this year, uh, workers felt like because of that, the company began relaxing. You know, they were not taking serious the uh, the the temperatures. They were not taking serious anything. The PPE. The that's PPE, right. It was like, oh, masks. we don't need any of this now. You're all vaccinated. You know, right? they're we're just over the pandemic. And the fact yeah. is, like, we had a huge uh, surge of cases of COVID Delta. And the company was not mm. talking about Delta variants whatsoever. Many mm-hmm. workers got sick of Delta. Less workers died this year because many were vaccinated. That's true. Uh, mm-hmm. But still, like, there is not reinforcements of... Because the pandemic is not officially over. There's no. many variants uh, showing all the time. So workers feel like the company should still... And, and maintain safety protocols around pandem- any pandemic or COVID at this, at this point. That's um, right, right. But really, the workers feel less safe now, not only because of the pandemic, is because now they are exposed to more accidents because their uh, labor shortage, you know, less workers are doing the job of many. And, and, and higher chain speeds. Exactly. Yes. It's faster. Yes. And I, I mean, yeah, every really day workers call me and, and really, I'm not lying about this. They are tired. They're exhausted. Yes, they're drained, I it. you know, like physically, yeah. emo- emotionally, psychologically, these workers are affected at that point that they can't anymore. I mean, they call me yeah. and say, Magali, 
I am doing the job of three in my line. There is not people. It's faster. It has to be quick. They are like spying on us because they don't let us go to the bathroom. They, yeah. they don't give us enough breaks. So it's less breaks, less restrictions, more restrictions on bathroom breaks. The right. higher the line speed is and less workers. So imagine the situation, how it oh, is right now. is worse than, than last year. Well, we have to move on a little bit, but um, one of the things that struck me when I was doing research on you was that you were one of several people who testified in front of a very recent congressional subcommittee investigating the actions of the meatpacking companies, such as Tyson, um, just about three weeks ago, October 27th, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And this subcommittee is focused on how the industry responded to COVID-19. I mean, abuse of labor in the meatpacking industry predates COVID by decades. But so when you were testifying, did you feel that these members of Congress who were listening to you were taking in the degree of abuse that is absolutely, you know, status quo in meatpacking? Or were they only interested in knowing whether or not there was PPE and, you know, vaccinations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Selected Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis has done a good job of investigating, you know, and to really bring that issue to to that level of conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, they've been uh, talking with workers, I know, because I've been in contact with them since they began the investigation this year, connecting them with workers. And so they've been really truthful about trying to do something to protect these workers. However, in that day, in that hybrid uh, hearing, it was very uh, disconcerting. You know, it was very disappointing to see how many members were just trying to avoid the subject that there were many powerful right. testimonies you know even the family uh these sure. workers who came and really for them they were just not it was it, it, these workers are seen because the majority of them are brown black you know vulnerable yes. workers there is a lot of racism a lot of racism oh, yeah. and a lot of, of classism too so really, it was very disappointing to hear that these people were not taking into consideration the deaths of these workers and how these workers have been suffering in order yeah. to bring food to our table. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we have to take a short break and we'll be right back with Magali Licoli from Venceremos to talk more about poultry workers in Arkansas and what can be done to improve the lot of meat packers throughout the world. Stay tuned for that. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. 
Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. So we only have a couple minutes left, so we're going to talk real quickly about the ways that your organizing techniques can result in the kinds of changes you want to see in the industry. So if you don't mind just mentioning what you're really looking for in terms of change in the industry and how how you see your path forward going. Yeah, so Venceremos is a worker-led organization. I co-founded Venceremos with a group of poultry women workers from different plants. Right now, we created mm-hmm. a core group, and so lot workers from different plants, from Tyson, Georgia, Siemens, you know, are part of this core group. So we are trying to uh, bring or bring more workers to the base, but to really grow at the implement uh, implementation of the worker-driven social responsibility model. Uh, to the poultry industry. So that's what we are working right now and working right now on direct, on doing direct campaigns directly with these companies because, as I said, there is not uh, mechanisms of filing a, uh, something through OSHA. There is nothing yeah. in place to protect workers right now. So right. we have to keep on fighting, on doing direct action. So right now, workers are organizing in different plans. Some workers have gone on a strike, doing worker petitions you know, trying to fight back the conditions of the poultry plants and really organizing poultry workers because if you talk to other, uh, you know, across the country, organizing poultry workers is very difficult because these workers are, imagine that these poultry plants are located in wide rural areas, you know, in areas where immigrants right. don't feel welcome. You know, and so there is a lot. And imagine even organizing here in Arkansas where Tyson is is like a big figure, you know, in charity that they provide a lot of money to nonprofits, to the university, to schools. So everything is really acting against workers. But for me, uh, what has been working and organizing workers is being truthful to the workers. You know, I think that workers, because they've been... Uh, betrayed you know they've been uh, left alone uh, or abandoned really in this fight you really need to stand truthful to these workers you know truthful to the message because every time that I speak in public is really I'm speaking the words of the workers so workers know that uh, we are not trying to benefit the company or trying to look polite you know because a yeah. lot of uh, people here sees us as a very radical because of our approach but we know what we are doing we know that there is no way to create change if we don't hold these companies accountable if we don't expose right. them if we don't expose the true stories of these workers so i think that now a lot of people see venceremos as a, as a hope you know it's it's a hope for many workers, thousands of workers in Arkansas that often were uh, just ignored, you know. And sure. I tell you because I I came, I did this job because I work in a community clinic. And when I learned the stories of workers and speaking to other leaders in the community, they almost told, it was a taboo. And it still is a taboo talking about the conditions wow. of these workers. So right now we are breaking through that taboo. We are changing the narrative. Even if they don't like us, sometime, someday we know that they will see us and there is no way that they can ignore us because our fight is growing. Our movement is growing. 
and right. we just have to keep moving forward. Oh, that's fantastic. I think we're going to have to stop there, unfortunately. But um, thank you so much, Magali Licoli. I really appreciate your time today. And folks, don't forget to subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Check back often as we address critical questions for eaters, operators, and workers across food topics and business sectors. If you have questions you'd like the show to answer, email us at question at heritageradionetwork.org. Special thanks for this episode to Magali Licoli and Vincent Ramos. And The Big Food Question is produced by Katie Mosman, Wadler, Hannah Forden, Dylan Hoyer, Matt Patterson, and Luke Griffin. This episode's producer was me, Katie Kiefer, and our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder, and The Big Food Question is powered by Simplecast. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode.